moneyed villains Give was not their will They paid their hired assassins To shoot, to shoot, to kill They began the battle thing I learned was that the uh, riot was not really a riot, it was, it was more of a battle. On October 12, 1898, coal company guards killed at least eight miners who were trying to stop scabs from taking their jobs in Verdon, Illinois. Six guards were also killed in the gunfight, and 30 people were wounded. On today's show, book owner and historian John Alexander recounts the circumstances leading up to the gun battle between mine guards for the Chicago Verdon Coal Company and coal miners, members of the United Mine Workers of America, who were locked out of their jobs. Alexander provides a dramatic blow-by-blow retelling that comes from someone who spent his life in Verdon and has deeply studied what actually happened there in 1898. He also explains how the shootout connects to the story of how legendary organizer and Hellraiser Mother Jones came to be buried in the only Union-owned cemetery in the United States, the Union Minor Cemetery in Mount Olive, Illinois. And on today's Labor History in 2. The year was 1933. That was the day that 40 armed cotton growers shot at a group of striking workers in the small town of Pixley, California. I'm Chris Garlock, and that's all ahead on this week's Labor History Today. Here's the show. Hello, this podcast features historian John Alexander speaking from his store, Books on the Square, at 153 East Jackson Street, Burden, Illinois, which he co-owns with his wife, Jeannie. They have another store at 427 East Washington Street, Springfield, Illinois. Alexander tells the story of the 1898 Battle at Burden and the connection to Mother Jill. Check out booksonthesquare.com. My name is John Alexander. Uh, I'm a longtime resident of Verdon, Illinois. uh, My dad had a shoe store in this building we're standing in. It opened in 1948, and that was the year I entered the first grade here in Verdon. And I graduated from high school here in 1960, did my college work at Monmouth College for a bachelor's and uh, went to graduate school over at the University of Illinois at Champaign. Long time ago, I got interested in Verdon history. I remember well the Verdon Centennial of 1952, and I, I big community play production was done out on the high school football field. And one of the uh, events of Verdon history highlighted in that community play was the Verdon Mine Riot of 1898. That sparked my interest in knowing more about the so-called Mine Riot. And I spent a lifetime learning about it, reading about it, 
I've accumulated all kinds of information and I'm glad to share some of that with you folks here uh, today. I will say at the get-go, Mother Jones is of great interest. Uh, she was not at the Verdant Mind battle, but in spirit, I believe she was. And I think there were a lot of people inspired by Mother Jones who uh, made this beautiful monument we have here in Verdant possible. First, on the uh, the first thing I learned about the mind riot, I learned there were a lot of stakes and myths surrounding the mind battle. If you can imagine growing up in a little town in central Illinois, you can imagine how stories would get stretched and changed over some 50, now 100 or more years. And the first thing I learned was that the riot was not really a riot. It was It was more of a battle. I'm of the opinion that uh, riots are unplanned events, spontaneous events, maybe unexpected events. You don't plan a riot. Uh, riots just kind of pop up and occur. Uh, being a sports fan, I can often think of near riots or read about them at soccer games in, in Europe or maybe at football games. <laughs> in Illinois high schools, a riot may occur, but this mind riot was not a riot, as we'll see, and I learned it was it was a battle. Okay, let's start at the beginning, though. Uh, what was it about? Why did it occur? Well, it, it stems out of or grows out of the great strike, coal strike of the late 1890s. Remember that the UMWA traces back to about 1892-93. They were a very young organization at the time of the, the mine battle. Uh, as is a case in so many things, uh, the issues between labor and management might be thought to be one thing or another, but generally, I've learned, it's, it's about money. And if you don't think even about money, just look a little, look a little harder. Now I'm going to use a cheat sheet here, but in 1883, miners were paid 80 cents for bringing to the surface about 300 feet up from the scene here below us in Verdon, which is about seven feet thick. They were paid 80 cents a ton. By 1897, their pay had dropped from 80 cents a ton down to 50 cents a ton. And in 1898, on the eve of the Verdant Mine Battle, the Verdant Chicago, Chicago Verdant Coal Company was paying uh, just a little over 30 cents a ton. So imagine your wages being cut by almost 250%. I, I just, it just boggles my mind, you know. I told a group of school teachers once who averaged $50,000 a year pay, let's say, as a group, imagine if your pay was cut from 50000 in 14 years down to 17000 Do you think you might be mad? Matter now, it's just unbelievable that coal miners were going to hit that hard. Remember, too, they had deplorable working conditions. And each year, Illinois was losing about 80 to 100 coal miners killed. Work killed by rockfalls was probably the major cause of death. So by 1897, 
the UMWA and New Union on the national scene took it upon themselves to try to get the Myers uh, pay bumped back up, if not to 80 cents, at least to maybe 50 cents, which they asked for, as well as an eight-hour day. Now, eventually they settled on January of 1898, effective April 1, 1898, they won the eight-hour day issue. So people looking back at this mine strike, a national strike, the 1890s, generally think, oh, that's the year we got the uh, eight-hour day. And that was all well and good. But I think people are overlooking hourly, not the hourly wage, the wage per ton. In 1898, at the time of this great coal strike, there were 800 coal mines in Illinois. Uh, so in a county like Lecoupin County, uh, our average, uh, countywide average in Illinois would be about eight mines per county. Uh, there were more than that in Macoupin County, I can tell you that. There were three in Verton and several in Gillespie, uh, Mount Olive, scattered all over the county, Carlinville, Girard. The result of the national strike, 1898, was 776 of these 800 coal mines in Illinois accepted new wage per ton, raised their pay from a little over 30 cents per ton, flat 40 cents per ton. 24 mines, in other words, in Illinois, did not become a party to this agreement. One of those 24 was the Chicago Verdant Coal Company here in this town, which in 1897 had produced more tons of coal than any other mine in Illinois. So this was, this was a big one. Here you had the largest coal mine in the state saying, you guys may pay these fellows 40 cents a ton, but we're staying at 32. So they had on April 1st, every other mine, nearly every other mine in Illinois went back to work. They began a lockout in Verdon of the coal miners. The coal miners were ready to go back to work for 40 cents a ton, but the company uh, would not uh, become a party to the agreement, locked them out. A lot of people say it was the miners were on strike. Well, that's true in part. They were on strike until April 1st. After April 1st, they were ready and willing to go back to work, wanted to go back to work. Their families were in great because they'd been out of work so long. But the coal company decided, you may want to come back to work. You may be willing, but we're not. We're locking the gates. And that's what they did. The second little myth I learned that was that the miners were not on strike the time of the mine battle, they were locked out. And I think that's important to understand. A lot of people get that wrong, including the union historians on the, on this little, little battle. Um, from April 1st to October 12th, the day of the, the battle, uh, tensions mounted a, a both sides prepared for the worst. Uh, the mine attempted to convince the governor that the National Guard should be used 
help import uh, scab replacements for the uh, locked-out miners. The governor at the time, uh, John Tanner, who was from Southern Illinois, Republican, reacted in a very unrepublican way. He he decided with the miners. He said, well, we, I, I'm not going to be party to bringing in uh, coal miners from out of state to take the jobs of Illinois miners. And that basically set the company off in the direction, well, we'll have to fend for ourselves. We'll hire armed guards. And that they did from the field. Uh, or Teagle, I'm not sure how you pronounce that, T-H-I-D-L, uh, detective agency in St. Louis. So he, uh, the manager of the uh, coal mine, a uh, fellow by the name of Lukens, was kind of the villain in the story for me, set out to hire armed guards and cops and soldiers returning from the war in uh, Cuba. Uh, remember, this was the time, almost simultaneously, the time of Teddy Roosevelt, the Rough Riders. And some of the men who fought in Cuba wound up here uh, as armed guards uh, to the Chicago Verdon Coal Company. Well, the miners uh, caught wind of uh, the idea that some of the uh, train load of black coal miners uh, might be headed up this way from Alabama, where they were uh, recruited to take the jobs of the locked-out miners in Verdun. But there's a possibility in Alabama, as many people know, that they were using convict uh, labor, uh, rightly or wrongly uh, convicted black coal miners, instead of being sentenced to prison, were sentenced to being coal miners uh, and uh, used uh, for profit uh, by the the state of Alabama, and perhaps other states as well. And I think, really, these guys had to be duped into believing that, uh, you know, no problem, come on up to Vert, nice little community in central Illinois. Uh, you'll be greeted by the coal company, and you'll make a little more than you're making in Alabama now. But they offered them, interestingly enough, less than they did the uh, last pay for the for the Verdon miners, which was about 32, 33 cents a ton. They offered the scabs 29, 28, 29 cents a ton to come up here into a heated situation about which they knew very, very little. Local unions in the area uh, were allies of the Verdon miners from the beginning. And men came from miles around from every town, probably in 30 miles uh, set over here. Eventually, the miners built up a small army of men, about 2,000 men. Most of them, as you can imagine, were armed, and many of them with just their own shotguns. So on the one side, we have a company that's building a stockade around the mine with uh, towers for snipers. Uh, and on the other side, we have 2,000 mostly armed miters armed with uh, shotguns. They are literally facing off the mine on one side of the railroad track in the north end of Verdun, and a big field on the opposite side of the track filled with uh, different camps of the local union men armed. 
and drilling, ready to ready to fight for their jobs, fight for their brothers. Uh, out of towners had basically gone back to work, but they were willing to come uh, support their union brothers in Verdun. As the date came closer, uh, the miners developed some contacts along this route to let them know when this train might arrive. And it's believed that uh, as this train uh, came through St. Louis on the way up to Verdun on what I still call the old Chicago and Alt route, um, that uh, word was spread by telegraph that the mine and the scabs, the scabs replacement workers were on their way. I've heard stories from many old timers and when that train and um, six cars carrying about 150 scabs and unfortunately their wives and in some cases their kids approached Verdun. Uh, the guards on board pulled down the shutters there on the windows and told everybody to hit the deck. And that was because they knew that there was probably gunfire about to begin. And sure enough, as the train came into Verdun from the south up through uh, and Shipman and Carlville and Girard, uh, you know, the, the men in town were, like we said, armed and prepared and waiting for action. As that train got to the middle of Taylor, not too far from where we're standing here today, the firing began, and the first man killed was a uh, detective, railroad detective, hired by the Chicago Nalton. Now, my thought is he was probably shot and killed uh, because he, his job that day was to throw the switch and send the train off on a spur directly to the mine site that ran parallel to the main track. It'd be pretty odd to think that somehow you would pick out the perfect man. No one knows who killed uh, this gentleman, but he became the first casualty uh, at, the, at the scene. The train pulled forward about a half mile, parked itself right across from uh, the mine. At that point, uh, Everything broke loose. The guards were firing at the miners in the field. Vice versa, the miners were firing back at the stockade. There were 12 men killed here at Verdun. I should say killed or fatally wounded who died maybe a day or two days later in some cases. But counting the uh, railroad detective, there, there were 13 people killed here in a gunfight that lasted about 15 minutes. Now that's that's pretty serious business. If you if you think about Illinois history, a gunfight that kills thirteen people that surpassed the OK Corral among many other uh, gunfights that we probably know more about. Eight of those men killed were uh, miners, members of the UFWA. Oddly enough, no one from Verdun was killed at the Verdun mine battle. Pretty hard to believe, although there was a company store man who was nearly beaten to death left for dead across the street from us in the city park. But miraculously, he survived a few uh, wounds and a, a terrible beating. Other four people killed were uh, company 
guards hired just for uh, an ugly event just like this. A Chicago cop, the man from Indianapolis, a uh, couple others. Uh, you can imagine uh, chaos it must have been in for uh, 2,000 armed men on one side and a uh, hundred well-armed men on the other side with repeating rifles firing from protected positions uh, the havoc they could uh, wreak in just a few minutes. The eight miners killed um, were from Mount Olives, um, Sorrento, Edwardsville, Taylorville, Sprayfield, and Girard. I believe I have that right. The dead miners and the fatally wounded miners were taken to a, a home on the east side of Verdun that uh, became kind of a, an emergency hospital that was located at the O'Neill House. When the governor caught wind of what, what had happened at Verdun, he was urged to uh, come down and bring the National Guard and support the company once again, and he refused once again. The union invited him down, of course, to um, uh, break up the fight and prevent uh, an attempt to land scab workers here in Verga. On the train incident, uh, the engineer of the train, a guy named Burke Kiger from Bloomington, Illinois, was also wounded and pulled the train forward and went up uh, through uh, beyond Springfield to almost and to Lincoln stopped town uh, Atlanta, Illinois. That's how far he wanted to get away from uh, this situation here. Tiger uh, survived. The end result was the governor then uh, sent a National Guard contingent down from Springfield, troops straight back from the war in Cuba. And they uh, were under orders to disarm uh, everybody in the community close the taverns, and declare a martial law. So they did all of those things. They, they disarmed uh, the guards, the miners, and told the miners to leave the community. Okay, so after this 15 minutes, there were several men dead, several men dying, and, and many more wounded, at least another 30 to 50 men, according to accounts in all the newspapers that covered this were wounded uh, as well. Uh, speaking of newspaper accounts, uh, October 13th, 1898, the day after the money battle, uh, this was a headline story not only in Illinois, but nationally. Uh, papers all over the country featured this story on their front pages. As well, you can imagine, uh, if an event like this occurred today anywhere in the United States, you can imagine it would be front page news nationally. And CNN would probably be there in Pronto as well as other uh, television works as well. Several um, miners were taken to hospitals in Springfield. But the main action after the mine in terms of uh, calming the community was the presence of the uh, Illinois National Guard. I have photos of uh, the camp they set up across the street in the town park, the city park. Uh, they literally were here in Verdun for not days, but several weeks uh, to maintain uh, the peace. Um, 
there were all kinds of uh, questions about who was at fault, as you can imagine, who, who should be charged with uh, murder on the one hand or whatever on the other hand. A county a grand jury took a look at uh, the situation and indicted several people. Uh, a few minors were indicted uh, for the beating and uh, near kicking to death of Jacob Eister, who ran the company store, which is just right two doors uh, west of me here. Eister, incidentally, we might talk about this, um, uh, was mistaken. People from out of town thought he was uh, Lukens, the uh, villain in the story. Because they thought he was Lukens, they wanted to beat the poor guy to death. He survived something I've never been able to track down on uh, what, what happened to uh, Eister. Uh, he left the and uh, didn't show his face again, as far as I know. Oddly enough, Lukens, incidentally, is buried in Verdon uh, at our city cemetery. So after the, uh, after the mine battle, uh, martial law takes over, and believe it or not, within about a month or six weeks, Beyond the mind battle, the company paid and became a partner in the contract. So the men got their 40 cents an hour. Uh, it was hard work, uh, but they they got it uh, thanks to the end uh, standing together and uh, fighting in their behalf. I might talk about some of the uh, results of the Verdon Mind Battle here before we take a look at the monument. Um, the first thing I think that's clearly interesting uh, is that before the mine battle, only a small minority of Illinois coal miners belonged to the United Mine Workers of America. But after the mine battle, when miners in Illinois and those 800 mines we talked about saw the result, they stood together and fought in one. That was membership in the MWA began to grow, grow, where shortly thereafter, shortly after Verdon, uh, within a few years, uh, the great majority of all miners in Illinois, not a minority, the majority belonged to the UMWA. They were quite proud of what they had accomplished here at Verdon. I have a little badge uh, that shows Includes the words victory at Verdon that the UMWA put out. And you can bet that there were a lot of Central Illinois miners who wore that very proudly. So the union's growth was one of the big results. Uh, another uh, minor uh, result was that October 12th, which is Columbus Day, if you remember, uh, was tagged uh, Verdon Day, uh, local the local lines around here for years, and uh, it was a, a paid holiday for the UMWA uh, membership. That day, incidentally, has kind of developed over the years and then you'll into, some would call it Miner's Day, and others might call it Mother Jones Day, because every uh, October 12th, on a on weekend close to October 12th, uh, there's a Mother Jones dinner in Springfield and a uh, uh, ceremony at oh, at the Myers Cemetery, but that traces back to uh, the Verdon Mine Battle, that date. Third uh, 
third result of the Verdon Mine Battle was the creation of a very historic cemetery here in McCookney at Mount Island. The Miner's Cemetery directly traces to the Verdon Mine Battle. Uh, Mount Olive uh, had lost four miners here at the battle. And when those uh, young men were buried at a sem private cemetery in uh, Mount Olive, the board eventually rejected the idea of having uh, buried them and uh, didn't want the UMWA uh, celebrating the uh, Landers Day in a private cemetery. Disinterred those men and left their bodies uh, to the Union to uh, bury at what became the Miner Cemetery, created specifically to bury these four men uh, killed in Verdun. I can tell you growing up in a small town that a lot of people were embarrassed about these events. A lady from Vernon, who uh, was a descendant of the mayor of Vernon at the time, told me that uh, this was a dark day in her history and wondered why I even uh, spent time trying to research it and learn more about it. She was kind of uh, that happy about that. And I can imagine there were some people in Mount Olive who might have been uh, embarrassed about the fact that four young men from their community were uh, shot and killed in, in Verdun. We know people, and that's always um, agree on uh, how events are interpreted. Last but not least on the results, uh, Mother Jones, who was here in spirit, it is clearly depicted on our mine battle uh, monument in the park, asked to be buried. Uh, alongside, quote, the heroes of Vermin. She wanted to be buried in the Mononali Minor Cemetery. She even sent paperwork on Chuba Coopin County indicating that. I'd seen the paperwork in Carlinville years ago. So when Mother Jones finally passed at a at 100 years, some said she was 93. She claimed she was 100, one of the few people I've ever known who claimed she was older and then what she really was. But when she was buried at Mount Island with thousands of miners and men uh, and at her funeral, uh, she did get her wish. She was buried next to the heroes of Verdun. And I maintain, uh, kind of in closing at this, or summing up at, at this point, that she wanted to be buried next to those eight who were killed in action here in Verdun. I think those were the most admired were the, those men who lost their lives here that day in a fight for their jobs, in a fight for their, in, in a fight for their families who were starving because they couldn't continue to be locked out of work month after month after month. So Mother Jones is buried here. She's a national icon, as we know, in labor history. And it's kind of amazing that she uh, got buried out here in a small town, in a small county, out here in the Midwest. But she she admired these eight and so much, uh, and the Union men she gave her life to. Uh, that she wanted to be buried at their side. She definitely got her wish. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. It was brought to you by Jace media service and the redneck historian for the friends of mother jones museum and union minor cemetery 
both located in Mount Olive, Illinois. For more information on Mother Jones, see Mother Jones Museum, Mount I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1933. That was the day that 40 armed cotton growers shot at a group of striking workers in the small town of Pixley, California. That year, a wave of labor unrest had swept through the fields of California's agricultural industry. Nearly 50,000 workers participated in strikes throughout the year. The Agricultural Workers Industrial Union led many of the strikes. The American Federation of Labor also led two walkouts. Workers were angry over declining wages and the harsh working conditions of agricultural life. The Depression had slashed wages. Cotton field workers in the San Joaquin Valley had seen their wages cut by as much as 75%. Three quarters of those workers were Mexican. As cotton harvest season neared, the workers organized to strike. They demanded a dollar for every 100 pounds of cotton they picked and recognition of their union. The growers offered 60 cents. At the peak of the strike, an estimated 12 to 18,000 workers had walked off the job. Anger mounted. Armed growers attacked striking workers, demanding they return to work or leave California. Strike leaders were arrested. In Pixley, the growers formed a Farmers Protective Association. They claimed to have as many as 600 members. Reportedly, one manager of a cotton gin told the farmers, the time has come for us to take the law into our own hands and drive the strikers from our farms. The simmering tensions boiled over. As highway patrolmen looked on, a band of growers shot into a group of unarmed strikers. At least two strikers fell dead. The violence resulted in public outcry and federal intervention. The workers received federal relief and a mediator helped to settle the strike. And in the settlement, the workers would receive 75 cents per 100 pounds of cotton. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com. <laughs> That's about love, freedom, freedom, freedom. You fight about love, freedom, and the bars come tumbling down. That'll do it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. You can subscribe to LHT on your favorite podcast app, and even better, if you like what you hear, and we sure hope you do. Please like it in your podcast app, pass it along, and leave a review. That really helps folks to find the show. The Verdant Gun Battle story came to us from James Golds and his Jay's Media Service podcast. You can check out more Labor History episodes at the link in show notes. Labor History in Two is a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show, a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. Today's music was Remember Verdant and Union Fights the Battle of Freedom, owned by Bucky Hawker and the Complete Unknown. We've got a link to their great album, Welcome to Laborland, in the show notes. Labor History Today is produced by the Metro Washington Council's Union City Radio and the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. The Labor History Today team includes... Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pozak, and Alan Weirdak. For 
Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks for listening. Keep making history and see you next time. Find the public with us. Find they're on our side. Hear that mighty chorus that fills our hearts with pride. You've had survival of freedom. story we told you where we stand help us win the glory for our striking union band you've had some battle